G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Vision Christian Radio is all about connecting faith to life. From inspiring stories about the struggles we all face, to helping you understand the issues going on in the world, to clear and understandable Bible teaching, all peppered with great Christian music, the latest news, and even a few laughs along the way. You're about to experience just a small part of what we do. For the full experience, tune into a Vision Christian Radio FM or AM station near you. Listen online at visionradio.org.au or download our free app. The idea of swearing on the Bible. Have you ever been to court where you've been giving evidence and uh, you've been a witness or however you've been in court? doesn't necessarily mean that everybody goes to court is actually standing in the dock ready to be convicted of something because whenever you go to court and you're giving evidence, you're asked to swear on the Bible or take a solemn oath. Well, have you ever sworn on the Bible? Uh, When you give evidence in court, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But, of course, the idea of swearing on the Bible goes deeper than just people who give evidence in court. It also extends to people who are in political office, where they'll uh, swear a oath of allegiance uh, to the Queen, as in the case of Australian politicians like the Prime Minister and those ministers, Uh, So swearing on the Bible and ending with those words, so help me God. I wonder whether you think of the impact of that, or is it just a throwaway line that doesn't have much meaning today? Perhaps it had a meaning a long, long time ago, but perhaps that meaning has been absorbed somehow because... uh, Uh, because these days we think of ourselves as much more modern than all of that. What does it have to do with the law of the land? I wonder if you'd like to be part of our conversation today. You might like to make your contribution. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Our special guest talking through these issues this hour is Mark Fowler. Mark is the chair of the organisation known as CLEAR which means Christian Legal Education Aid and Research. It's the charity that is drawing together Christian law societies around Australia and even involved in mission activities around the world. Well, Mark Fowler is joining us. And hello, Mark. Welcome along to 2020. Great to be here, Neil. Well, Mark, we have had some really good conversations in days gone by. I suspect today is going to be one of those that listeners will want to get involved in because so many people have either been to court uh, and they've given evidence and they've had to swear on the Bible or you've seen that there's been an election and uh, a new party takes power. Perhaps there's a new prime minister or a new premier in your state and there's a swearing on the Bible. How should we think of that in an overall sense as a Christian? Because there's there's a for and against sort of Bible scriptures that you can find about swearing on the Bible. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts overall? Okay, now, um, look, it's an int- I mean, there's a lot of interesting historical dynamics at play uh, in the oath. You can almost um, look at the oath or affirmation as a bit of a litmus, litmus test or a bit of a, you know, an insight at various points through the history of our Western tradition um, in terms of the, I guess, the tussle between the church and the state as well. So there's these great um, oaths. The oath sort of really came into to play um in terms of political allegiances around the time of the Tudors, Henry VIII, 
where the kings and the queens started using it to uh, require individuals to disclaim any allegiance to the Pope, for example. There's some really interesting old O's at that time. So they're a very interesting beast in the sense that they give us a bit of a taste of the temper of the times. And so I think one of the things you want to look at is what are the current O's that are sworn when ministers are sworn into office and MPs are sworn in under our constitution. And so these, these provided just a unique insight into the nature of, I guess, the relationship between the state and the other, the, the, the sacred realm. Let me put you on the spot here, because is there a difference between uh, the oath and a vow? I mean, are they both much the same? Because, you know, there is a sense, isn't there, that when you do your wedding vows, uh, mm. you are actually, in some sense, uh, swearing an oath. It's an oath of allegiance to your partner, but you're mm. actually making those vows uh, to your spouse, and it is a vow that you're making before God. Is it the same? Is it the same as a covenant? Mm. Uh, like, you know, we talk about the Old Testament covenant. Mm. Uh, then there's a New Testament covenant. Are these sorts of things all interrelated? They are. They certainly are. I mean, they're all, you know, expressions of a contractual undertaking, I guess. To, <laughs> to okay, we've got some legalese here. <laughs> <laughs> that, look, how good. long did it take? Five minutes? We've already got some. <laughs> three minutes. We've already got some legalese. But, yeah, they're all... Different understanding. So a covenant is a form of um, contractual relationship. A vow, obviously, um, in common parlance, we associate that with the marriage vows. Um, an oath, in terms of the, if we're looking at the uh, what MPs say, for example, there is a distinction between the oath and the affirmation. So the affirmation is the non-religious um, statement that is made. So I affirm this commitment and the oath is taken with reference to God. And so that's the, the key distinction in our discussion today between the oath and the affirmation. And it's interesting uh, to bring in a little bit of a twist here because people who decide not to take the oath because of religious reasons mm. and they make an affirmation instead are actually mm. making the affirmation for religious reasons. Yes, that's correct. It's all religious. Yes. And so even those, those people who might call themselves sceptics or atheists or yes. whatever, because they have a position on it, is actually a religious position on swearing an oath. Correct. So, <laughs> so, it's so, And that's not often well understood. So Michael Tate, for example, who was a attorney general in the Keating government uh, is a Catholic. And I think he's now gone on to take orders. I think he's a Catholic priest. Wow. Um, but uh, he's a wonderful man. And, and he refused to take the oath um, in his swearing in for a religious reason. And he cited Christ's statement that let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let no further oath be given because that should be good enough. And this is the reason why he took the affirmation. And he was criticized, I think, he's a Tasmanian. He was criticized by the Tasmanian Anglican bishop of the time, who I can't name now, but for doing so. Um, but he then clarified that actually I had a religious motivation and it wasn't. So, And it's interesting, actually, through the, um, through the, um, the passage of constitutional history in Australia, this has been the same thing where Christians who are motivated, um, who have a concern with taking the oath um, because of the, the kind of mishmash of, um, well, certainly because of Jesus and diet that we should not, you know, our, le- our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Um, so back as early as I think the, the head of the, the Nationalist Party, I think in 1913, if I remember rightly, refused to take the oath for the same reason because mm-hmm. he believed that Jesus said, no, you shouldn't 
And he was widely lambasted in the press as an atheist, you know, effectively, and he had to clarify what his motivation was. Okay, well, uh, this is why this is a contentious discussion, and uh, listeners invited to be a part of this conversation today, so our talkback line's open. 1-800-316-316. What are your thoughts on swearing on the Bible? Uh, you might even like to do a quick Bible study before you actually contribute because there's uh, some Bible scriptures and we might draw some more attention to those. Uh, let's take a call, though. Bruce is in Wilson's Beach in Queensland. Hello, Bruce. Welcome along to 2020. Good morning, Neil. Thank you. Yeah, Matthew 5.33 and following, you already alluded to. A couple of quick points. My wife was a witness at a Medifraud trial back in the 1880s. Goodness, 1980s. She's an old lady, that your wife of yeah, yours? Yeah, yeah. My wife's an old... No, she's not listening, fortunately. I don't think so. Uh, anyway, a, a, doctor, a doctor who had defrauded, and I can say that because he, he was convicted, but he swore black and blue on the Bible. It wasn't an issue. He was a lapsed Muslim. My wife came to uh, give evidence, and she declined to uh, swear and uh, quoted the Bible, and um, the Matthew uh, 5, as I said earlier, and then uh, with respect, Your Honour, she said, I'd like to point out that uh, having worked for this gentleman, he's not a Christian, he's sworn on a Bible, and he was asked to make an affirmation. Okay, so uh, so so the uh, the judge or the magistrate can actually ask someone to make an affirmation and not take an oath on the Bible. Is that is that the case? Well, stay, with, that. stay with stay with Bruce. Is that something that can happen, Mark? Um, look, I, I don't know actually, Neil. It's never come up for me, so it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting circumstance, most certainly. Okay, all right. Well, uh, because interestingly, when you are uh, swearing an oath on the Bible, I, I suspect you are swearing an oath before the God of the Bible, the God who is Creator. Uh, so, uh, and this is one of the powerful impacts of the fact that this is still uh, so much an interesting and integral part of our legal system is that God is still referenced every time uh, a person gives uh, bears witness of a particular, uh, you know, brings evidence uh, in the court. A mm-hmm. very, very amazing and deep Christian uh, contribution to our society. Mm, quite correct. And um, the, I mean, the, the history of, of O's um, actually predates um, Christendom in many senses. So the interesting thing was those were, were heavily relied on the Germanic legal tradition. And in the times, we're talking back in the sort of the early medieval period. So you've heard of the stories of the trial by fire and um, trial by water and so on. Well, there was also trial by oaths. And there was these standard oaths that were set in law. And this is the time when, you know, basically predating, um, you know, written um, legal proceedings. So where there's conduct proceedings effectively by a tribal chief, chief and sort of uh, uh, situation. And what would happen was it was called trial by compurgation and individuals would come in and swear certain oaths and the more witnesses you could bring in to swear oaths in support of your claim, these oaths would be weighed against the oaths of the other party. <laughs> okay. And well, let's, we'll follow that through in just a, a moment. Uh, Bruce from Wilson Beach still on the phone with us. And uh, yeah. Bruce, did you have any, anything more to add or did you have yeah, something sorry, that you wanted to Neil, contribute? I appreciate your time and uh, limitations. Uh, I, in turn, uh, two occasions. One, I, uh, I flicked the Bible open. I don't think it had ever been open before and uh, paraphrased from King James, uh, uh, the Matthew 5 uh, there. And uh, in the end, I said, uh, therefore, Your Honour, I'd like you to accept my yes as my no and my no. You could hear a pin drop in the courtroom. He said yes. 
The other one was I mean, when I said I didn't want to swear, I could make an affirmation. No, I don't want to make an affirmation. Uh, I have no power to swear or affirm under my own strength. I would like to quote this Bible verse and uh, say, let my yes be my yes. And that also was accepted. Okay, so, so while we might have, while we might have uh, the official oath, swearing on the Bible, uh, and an affirmation, uh, the judge or the magistrate uh, can actually accept a different sort of a ma- affirmation. Put you on the spot again, Mark Fowler. Again, look, this is a fairly, <laughs> it's a fairly unusual circumstance you've got there, Bruce. I, I must say, I've never had anyone uh, attempt it, so. It's very interesting. I, I can understand the um, religious motivations for doing that. And actually, you're speaking to the reason why we have the distinction between an oath and an affirmation. It was uh, Historically, it was really to um, answer the concerns of the Quakers, who didn't want to make an oath for the same reasons you're citing now today in court, Bruce. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your input today. And uh, always appreciate input from listeners uh, to our conversations. Uh, thanks for to Bruce from Wilson Beach in Queensland. Our talkback line is open. What are your thoughts? Perhaps you've got a story to tell yourself. Uh, how did you feel if you were in court and you were uh, you were uh, giving some testimony and you had to swear on the Bible? Did you take the oath or did you make an affirmation? 1-800-316-316 is our number, 1-800-316-316. Mark Fowler is our guest. Uh, he's a Christian lawyer, and we're talking through these things. Uh, Mark, it's uh, fair to say, too, you're you're actually in a whole lot of uh, study mode at the moment, uh, studying your PhD in uh, these areas that uh, are dealing with uh, uh, freedom of religion and uh, so these sorts of issues and uh, love to always tap your uh, deep understanding of historical uh, nature of uh, law. Coming back to what you were talking about, was it called purg- purga- compurgation? Ah, compurgation. All right. Okay. Now this is uh, this is getting into some other terminology with which most of us won't be so familiar with. But uh, in the Middle Ages, the idea of having an oath off. Uh, the idea that the more people you can have uh, who will yes. swear an oath uh, and really you've got someone who's making a point, giving evidence, mm. and then you've got all of the supporters who will actually take an oath. Yes. And that's really a support for the person because it's all about the integrity of what a person says. Correct. So what we're talking about here is establishing truth. Mm. Uh, so I want to, you know, someone wants me to tell the truth. So they say, well, if you take this oath, you'll swear on the Bible, then I know because you're a Christian man mm. uh, that you'll be telling the truth because you're telling the truth before God. Mm. This is a very powerful point about an oath, about swearing on the Bible. That's right, yeah. And um, it's interesting, actually. I mean, let's ask the question, why do we need oaths at all? Right, so why isn't Jesus' um, uh, statement, let your yes be yes and your no be no enough? It's interesting. And usually where we're using oaths is where we're affirming a commitment um, to the state or effectively to our fellow man, women. Um, so the question is, why do we need this additional gloss? Um, and of course, O's do are found in the um, Jewish tradition as well. So in the Torah, um, there were O's contained within the Torah. Um, there's almost an implication underlying the oath that you're calling upon a greater power outside of any secular power. Um, and the question must then be asked, why do we need to do that? You know? Is there, implicit within that, is it not enough that we just make commitments to one another? Do we need to also call down the judgment of God upon ourselves effectively? Um, And Immanuel Kant is a a German philosopher of the 18th, 17th, 18th century. 
Uh, and he saw a role for, it was a moral philosophy, he thought a lot about issues, and the, the, um, the uh, term categorical imperative has sort of made its way into common parlance from his, his writings. But he saw a role for O's as the person who is uh, wavering <laughs> in terms of whether or not they wanted to commit to call down the judgment of God. Those persons, their resolve will be strengthened to, to make the correct statement. That's what he saw as the role for O's. But otherwise, he agreed with Jesus that there should, you know, you should let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, well, this is a very powerful point, and uh, listeners might like to contribute on this, uh, because if you are a Christian and you're a person of integrity and you have uh, the intention of telling the truth uh, when you're in a court of law, then, uh, then you're going to tell the truth anyway. But if you're the person who is wavering and wondering whether you will actually tell the truth or perhaps a little bit of a white lie in there that might get change the whole direction of, of the evidence that you're giving, uh, then having something which actually gets you over the line to encourage you to tell the truth, is that's part of the motive of having the oath because you bring into the context of telling the truth that God is there as your judge. Mm, correct. That's right. And then, <laughs> there, well put. And, uh, but um, what also then impliedly within that framework as president, this is your reference, my PhD. So this draws into some of my PhD material, hmm. which is, is looking um, at the ongoing relevance of tax exemption for religious institutions. And part of what I'm looking at is the relationship between the secular and the sacred, so the state realm and the other, otherworldly realm. And uh, so the context of my thesis is looking at whether tax exemption, because tax, the power to tax, assumes a, a level of jurisdiction or control or authority. So if, um, this was the, the cry, obviously, of the, um, the Bostonian, um, the, uh, the Tea Party revolt you know, in, in Boston, that if you can extract $1, you can extract everything effectively um, to, the, to the British overlords at the time. So the, the theoretical power to extract is a power of, of jurisdiction over an entity. So, so if we trace what I'm doing in my PhD is tracing the exemption from taxation through the medieval period where the Roman church was a separate realm altogether, and then, of course, back to Augustine and what he wrote about the separation between the church and the state. And so there seems to be, on the initial research I've done this, general acceptance that the otherworldly expression in the form of the church was exempt from tax because the state itself didn't have the power to tax that other world. And so why oaths are then relevant, bringing it back to today's discussion, is there seems to be implicit within the oath an acknowledgement that there is this other world to which someone um, will be bound, I guess, in a sense. It's not enough to just affirm to the state. Um, this is the history of the oath. I'm affirming before God in front of all of you that this is the truth. So I'm calling down this otherworldly uh, sanction upon myself effectively. And so there is implicit within the oath this acknowledgement on the part of the state, whether expressed or impliedly, that there is this other world, this other world that continues to operate and is a greatest binding obligation than we can otherwise offer. 
It is a powerful concept and one you might like to contribute to. You might have a question. Uh, You might also uh, have other Bible scripture in mind when it comes to these issues of swearing on the Bible, making an oath. And there are a number of them you might like to contribute. 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Mark Fowler. He's chair of the organisation called CLEAR. Now, that's the body that unites Christian law societies around Australia, and they've got a wonderful program coming uh, through the year of a whole lot of different things that uh, they're wanting for Christian lawyers to attach themselves to. Uh, So if you are a Christian lawyer or if you know a Christian lawyer, you might like to put them in touch with Mark Fowler. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Certainly great to have you along with us today and a great topic of discussion. We're talking about swearing on the Bible. Have you ever given evidence in courts and you had to swear on the Bible? Did you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Well, there's tremendous foundation for what is happening in our courts every day around Australia. Uh, When there's a new political party that comes to power or a change of political leadership, there are oaths that are sworn and the Bible is used. Uh, People put their hand on the Bible and they swear an oath of allegiance. Well, you might like to be a part of our conversation, 1-800-316-316. Mark Fowler is our guest, Christian lawyer, and talking through this issue. Mark, let me just uh, come to these uh, scriptures that we're talking about. Uh, there's a number from the Old Testament, but and uh, listeners might like to, uh, you know, contribute. Uh, you might have some ideas about uh, the Old Testament uh, oaths that uh, that you can uh, you can identify. The one we were talking about, and a little earlier when Bruce called, he mentioned Matthew chapter five. So if I read uh, basically what that scripture says from Matthew chapter five verse thirty three onwards, again you have heard that the ancients were told, "You shall not make false vows." but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no, Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And there's another scripture just to draw our attention to as well, because uh, sometimes you think, well, that's what Jesus said, that that settles the whole argument about oaths, and uh, your yes is yes and your no is no. The writer to the Hebrews said in verse 16 of chapter 6, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Uh, So we're not talking about uh, an end of oaths, but certainly in the context of that individual that makes an oath as a believer and stating these things before God, there's real power in the fact that uh, a believer who says something needs to be a person of integrity and stand by their word and deliver truth where that truth is required. Uh, those sorts of scriptures, and there's others from the Old Testament, but your thoughts on uh, on those from the New Testament, Mark Fowler? Yeah, look, obviously um, Christ gives us a very clear statement about the need for personal integrity. And, um, you know, effectively our actions should be our witness. We should be people that are consistent obviously, and so that a whole life attests to the 
the idea that your yes is your yes and your no is your no and, and you are known as that. The the text that you gave in Hebrews, interesting that the context of Hebrews, of course, was written to Jews, uh, Hebrews. Uh, and so the particular reference to O's in the passage you've just read, I've just noted, Neil, doesn't necessarily affirm or deny the relevant purpose. It effectively uh, acknowledges the presence of O's in that community. Uh, and so in speaking contextually to the members of the community, he was using, he was being contextual. So he was saying, this is what you do. Um, and he was drawing a promise. So he wasn't necessarily affirming the practice itself. Okay. All right. Well, let's take some calls. one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. if you'd like to be part of this conversation. Bill is in Victoria. Hello, Bill. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. Bill, what are your I, thoughts? I just wanted to make the observation, which I hear has already been made, that swearing a note on a book that forbids the swearing of oaths seems to be a rather odd situation. And when I'm in court, I affirm a rather and swear an oath, and people assume that I'm not religious. It's simply the case that when I say something, I believe it to be true, and I don't need the um, rather ridiculous notion of swearing an oath to make my assertion more true than it would be otherwise. Bill, good thoughts there. Let's hear from Mark Fowler. Uh, Mark, any thoughts uh, on what Bill's sharing? Yeah, in a sense, I agree with you, Bill. I mean, certainly what you're saying aligns with what Christ said, which is that your yes should be yes and your no should be no, and your life should testify to that basic principle. Thank you so much for your call, Bill. A great input, in fact, there. Let's take another call. Robin is in Mount Morgan. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Yes, hi. Um, I, I just learned the other day uh, the Masonic, Masonic Lodge, they swear on the Bible, and that's obviously a satanic thing. Um, this man um, showed me all the way through the Masonic Lodge. There was the um, satanic symbols in there. And, and my, my observation is that, well, not only in that context, but many Satan will always use a godly context and twist it to deceive people. Um, you know, there's all the symbols in the Masonic Lodge, the upside-down star, um, which is really the goat head look for Satan. And, um, you know, every, it seems like he takes everything that... And, and also the building is um, in the... Um, it looks like Solomon's Temple with the two pillars at the front and a big, huge building. So um, it's like the devil enjoys using anything that we um, donate as, as a godly or, you know, from God, and he puts his own deception on it. Interesting thoughts there, Robin. Uh, any contribution from you, Mark Fowler? Yeah, I mean, interesting thoughts, Robin. Yeah, quite right. I mean, the devil does seem uh, to take uh, the mimicry, you know, and I think that was part of the original 
issue with, um, it's fairly consistent with his conduct right from the beginning that he aspired to be greater than God, didn't he? Uh, Robin from Mount Morgan, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. It's interesting that uh, when you hear of all sorts of other groups and uh, pseudo-Christian, pseudo-religious groups, and uh, and as Robin mentions, uh, the uh, uh, the Masonic uh, temple that they would actually be using the Bible to swear on. Mm. Uh, that's that's an interesting thing too, because uh, usually you might say if you're going to swear on the Bible and be that intentional about it, that you might adhere to uh, those contents as being from God. Mm. That's right. And again, it speaks to that kind of underlying perception. I guess we all share that can you know is your word your bind? And the implication is that it's not. And so we've got to cite some higher authority. And so you even see. The Masons, acknowledging that principle as Mm. well. Now, we're coming up to news uh, about a minute and a half out, and we're going to continue our conversation into the next hour. And you might like to contribute to our conversation on our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Mark Fowler, when we talk about this, whether you acknowledge the truth that's in the Scriptures or not, you are actually talking about uh, something that is called transcendence, mm. uh, understanding that there is, and you use that terminology, otherworldly mm. uh, power that uh, can bind you to truth because of the threat that you are to be a person of integrity and tell the truth. Mm. Uh, we want to talk a little bit more about this in the next hour because I'm going to ask you about transcendence and the law because you've got law as, as a, a standard for uh, our society and how it operates and having transcendence above the law is a little bit like having transcendence above an oath that we might take ourselves. Mm. Okay, I'm going to look forward to that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll Sounds be putting you. We will yeah. be putting you on the spot. Uh, continue our con- conversation in the next hour. Have you ever uh, sworn on the Bible? You might like to give us your impression. You might like to give us your idea of what the Bible is teaching about that. You might have some reflections too from the Old Testament uh, and the swearing oaths uh, of allegiance and swearing before God. Well, 1-800-316-316 to join our conversation. Mark Fowler is our guest, and we'll continue that topic of discussion in the next hour following the news. Coming up, afternoons on Vision Christian Radio. This afternoon, Matt's on holidays, so Greg Newman is joining me in the studio. We've got some quirky things that you can do with coffee filters. We'll reminisce with some of Greg's diary entries and, of course, catch up with Robbo in Tassie. Join us this afternoon. Uh, Mark Fowler, I mentioned just before the news that we ought to talk about issues of transcendence because uh, when we talk about God as being transcendent, that means he's above the affairs. Now, it's the above the affairs of our own life and our own integrity, mm. uh, but he's transcendent above the affairs and the laws of a nation. Uh, so this idea of transcendence, uh, when we're talking about swearing an oath, it's really like the law of our own lives, uh, answerable to God, uh, but it works for nations as well. Uh, how do you think of transcendence? It's, um, it's a fascinating topic, obviously, Neil. Um, maybe if we, the first thing that comes to mind, actually, is an experience I had recently in, a South, um, in an Asian nation. I probably won't go into where... Um, but I was asked in a Bible college, a seminary, whether by um, a local, he was one of the teachers at the seminary, and they were facing at that time a law that was going to require all converts to a religion to register their conversion with the court. And so you had a direct state incursion, essentially, 
Um, and I was asked whether or not the young students would have to send their friends that converted to the court and whether they had to abide by that law because obviously the implication was that there was some degree of concern um, that their conscience wouldn't allow them to do it. So to answer it, again, put on the spot, um, as you like to do Jimmy, <laughs> <laughs> on regular occasion, Neil, um, I cited first of all Romans 11, which talks about um, the Christian's role of uh, obedience to the state and that the context of that particular, say if a direct statement by Paul, that the authorities are in place for the good order of a society, for the punishment of the wrongdoer, and for the allowance of the gospel to be preached and go forth. And so contextually, you have a purpose as to why the, why the Christian obeys state edicts. Uh, so you've got that at sort of one end of the spectrum, if I put it that way. And then the other end, you've got Daniel, who is a direct example in the Bible of uh, a Christian's or a, a believer's, a Jewish in that sense, um, ability to defy a state law where that person's conscience leads them to conclude that this would breach their obligations to the higher order, as you said. Is the, uh, so you've actually got biblical mandate for breaching laws of a state, okay, in furtherance of conscience. And this is what Augustine was saying, you know, when he said, Lex injusta non est lex. Unjust laws are not laws. They're not actually binding upon you if they're unjust. And this was some of the reasoning behind also that great document which we looked at together last year, the Magna Carta. You know, that there's the first clause that the English church shall be free. And that was talking about the rights of the church to appointment of bishops, that it itself has a higher obligation to acquit, which is the obligation to God to maintain doctrine and so on. And that was in the context where kings were seeking to appoint bishops to take control. Okay, so we've got Christians who actually do give their allegiance to the state, but there is a higher allegiance, the allegiance to God. Mm. And uh, when you talk about the Magna Carta, we're talking about a higher allegiance to God too over that document because it was a matter of the king coming under the rule of law. It's like, mm. when I think of the rule of law, it's like a ceiling. These, these are the laws and uh, people mm. get to change them. Mm. Uh, we do that through a, uh, through a democratic process. Mm. But some people who would deny God would say, well, it's just the rule of law and people vote and uh, change the law uh, when they want it to be changed. Mm. Uh, having the transcendent presence of God, which holds you accountable, either in a personal sense or when it comes to the law of the land, uh, then you've actually got a you've got a, a transcendent authority, the authority that's over the law, mm-hmm. the authority that's over us personally, and uh, our first allegiance is to Him. So, so the law of the land and the personal law that governs us is first to God. Mm. And you're right. Like you can trace the um, Harold Berman, who was a Harvard professor, um, wrote this fantastic work, Law and Revolution, um, one and two. There were two volumes. And one of the themes that he picks up is that the the rule of law that we benefit from as modern Australians was actually fashioned in the contest between church and state. And, you know, it really was the church was the central uh, protagonist in the fight between, uh, you know, sort of the need to control absolute state power. It was the church that was speaking truth to the state so consistently throughout history. And so that great idea, the rule of law, that the the absolute monarch is him or her uh, self subject to the laws of the land. 
they are not enshrined. The laws are not enshrined in the person individually. And so, you know, so they can say effectively whatever edict they like and not be subject to the edict themselves. This was, and this was drawn from the Christian understanding that we all are accountable to a higher authority. And on one day, that authority will return. And interestingly, when we talk about the authority of the Bible, uh, whether you understand what's in there or not, it does give this understanding that there is a transcendent authority above the law. So Mm. all totalitarian states uh, would want to dismiss God, uh, dismiss the Bible, because if there's a higher power that they're answerable to, well, then they're not totalitarian anymore because there's no there's no governance over what that particular leader might do. So this is the power of the Bible, isn't it? When we talk about it as being the book which is the champion of all freedom, mm. we are talking about uh, the book that many of us will be reading each day. Some of us might not appreciate just the value of what the Bible is bringing to us. Mm. Uh, let's move on a little bit here, but we're inviting listeners to be part of our conversation on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Uh, what has our constitution uh, got to add to this whole discussion about uh, swearing oaths and uh, religious freedom? What are your thoughts, Mark? I just just one thought that you just fired off there about totalitarian states. It's an interesting one. I um, had occasion recently to look at the um, the oath that was promulgated by Joseph Stalin. So in the uh, the communist socialist state of uh, the Soviet Union. And it ended with this. Um, if through evil intent I break this solemn oath, then let the stern punishment of the Soviet law and the universal hatred and contempt of the working people fall upon me. <laughs> okay. so, so there's an oath. That's the, there's no transcendent God above that, but it's, uh, it's the allegiance to the law. That's right. And, and, and in the form of the body of the proletariat or the, the people, you know, so the people themselves, so this the universal hatred and contempt of the working people, they don't seem to be very benevolent, do they, in Soviet <laughs> Russia? But um, they could only cite their universal hatred and contempt. And but, it might be a topic for discussion another day, too, about democracy and the role that God and the Bible have in a functioning democracy. Because if you take God out of functioning democracy, all you have is uh, a whole lot of competing voices, a whole lot of minorities, uh, all battling for power. And uh, ultimately, it has to get to a point where one of those powers is totalitarian. We'll continue that conversation perhaps on another day. But one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. if you'd like to be part of our conversation, let's take a call from Graham in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Hello. Uh, I'd like to say that the church's battle in early times for, the, for people, and uh, of course the, the English church, of course, actually broke away from the Roman Catholics, and the old king, the old guys, the old kings at that time, a lot or before that, thought that they had the legal to rule the world as they wanted. They had it was God's will for them, and they ruled it in any way they pleased. And uh, these people, uh, you know, they look to men. They don't look to God. For instance, take uh, Matthew 16, 18 and 19. 19 tells you about on this rock I'll build my uh, um, church. And he said to Peter, I'll give you power to, to bind and a power to loosen that means that any minister of any church, someone that's not in that church, and they're not doing what's right by God, 
they can excommunicate them. And if they don't repent, they'll go to hell or like a fire. And if they repent, then they give the power to release them so they may enter into the kingdom of God. And Graham, a good point you're making there because governance within the church has to abide by the same idea that God is transcendent and he's the one who is building his church and he's the one that really is the foundation of church law. So what we're talking about, of course, uh, is the national laws that guide us. But uh, your thoughts on those things Graham was sharing, uh, Mark Fowler? Well, it's a bit of a segue, but I... um... I agree with you, Graham, in the sense, may I just read quickly the oath that was required of Henry VIII? And you drew attention to that, Graham. Yeah. Um, And so, Graham, just your comment about enshrining all authority within the one person who embodies the state. This was the oath that Henry VIII required. And, of course, you just alluded to it. Henry VIII was the one who nationalized the Roman Catholic Church and made himself the head of the church. Um, And so this was the oath he required, so that... The person was required to promise with all his body, cunning, wit, and uttermost power, and without guile, fraud, or other undue mean, that he would observe, keep, maintain, and defend all of the king, king's majesty's styles, titles, and rights, with the whole effects and contents of the acts provided for the same, and with all other acts and statutes made, or to be made, with this realm, together with the derogation, extirpation, and extinguishment of the usurped and pretended authority, power, and jurisdiction of the see and bishop of Rome and all other foreign potentates. (laughs) (laughs) You might hope that he actually had some time to absorb what all that meant before (laughs) taking that oath. (laughs) That's right. But um, it's it's delicious not only for its uh, archaic medieval language, but also the the fact that um, they were required to extirpate and extinguish all of the usurped and pretended authority of the see of the Bishop of Rome. So, And the problem was this, again, our conversation about church and state, Rome was claiming to be a separate authority higher than the king. And so this is why the oath that he required of all public officers had to exclude that authority. All right. Okay, well, thank you so much to Graham from Tasmania for your input today. We are taking calls. You might like to contribute. 1-800-316-316. Don is in Blackburn in Victoria. Hello, Don. Welcome along. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. And good afternoon to you. And what are your thoughts, Don? Just a couple of observations about swearing. <clears throat> uh, the need by courts to have people swear by the Bible, uh, is an orth- it's an unwritten acknowledgement that human nature is corrupt. Good point. And the other observation is that state organisations would claim to be secular or atheistic. So when they use swearing uh, to coer- or they use swearing to coerce people into telling the truth, using the Bible as an object of superstition. This is like having a two-way bet. Hmm. We don't believe in God or the Bible, but we will use it to our advantage on those who are religious or superstitious by calling on God to bring judgment a person if he does not tell the truth. Okay, so it's only the religious, really, that are the focus then. If you have a secular state uh, organisation, and we might be talking about the courts, uh, you're saying it's really only the religious who'll be, who'll be uh, coerced into telling the truth there. Yes, but uh, it, isn't it interesting that uh, a, a secular organisation uses religion to its advantage? That's right. And uh, your thoughts, Mark Fowler? Yeah, you're quite right. Um, but I'd, it's interesting also to track the use of the oath um, for swearing in of MPs. 
Um, so 1901, um, there was 100% uh, ascribing to the oath as opposed to the affirmation, which omits the reference to God. Um, and you know, I think it was the 2010 election, it was 75% of MPs, and I think around two-thirds of senators. Um, who So the, apparently the Senate is, is much more um, secular than the, the House of Representatives. Um, but so 75% of the members of the House uh, opted to swear the oath, and but so that's there is this increasing trend of, um, of I guess a decline of the use of the religious oath, at least at the Commonwealth Parliament level. Certainly, these things worthy of monitoring along, and it's good to be able to talk statistics when we discuss the ways that uh, even parliamentarians might be moving away from what we had originally intended around that time of federation. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Don from Blackburn from the, in Victoria for your input today on 2020. Our talkback line is still open, 1-800-316-316. We're talking about swearing on the Bible. You might have your own thoughts, 1-800-316-316. Back with more in just a few moments. Superbook has taken Australia by storm with its state-of-the-art animation and biblical adventures that speak to kids today. But don't take our word for it. I brought some DVDs that were called Superbook. Um, for my grandchildren to watch and I just wanted other grandparents out there to know and mums and dads absolutely how brilliant they are. The kids just watch them again and again and we talk about it and they're just the best product I really believe for your grandkids to um, help introduce them to the Bible. They're great. And now Superbooks heroes Chris, Joy and Gizmo return in three brand new episodes from season two Available at Vision Christian Store. Before the rooster crows, Step into the moment Jesus forgave Peter in Peter's denial. Visit ancient Jericho right before the battle in Rahab and the walls of Jericho. And learn about doing right in Job. All three amazing episodes from the most biblically accurate series ever produced. The must-have collection for your kids. Purchase Superbook Season 2 DVDs right now for just $19.95 each at Vision Christian Store. See visionstore.org.au. That's visionstore.org.au. Just another way Vision is connecting faith to your life. Harvest Bible College are the ministry training specialists with students from all around the world. It's never been easier with the option of studying online, anywhere, anytime, or at one of our many training locations in Melbourne, Perth, or the Gold Coast. Check us out at harvest.edu.au for details of our many courses. Vet Fee Help, Fee Help, and All Study are all available. Station sponsor, Harvest Bible College. It's your call. How can you help Vision? There's lots of ways, but one of them is supporting businesses that support us. Like station sponsor Everett Butchers. Shop 14 at the Woolworths Complex, Kalgoorlie Central. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We're taking time talking about swearing on the Bible. You might like to contribute 1-800-316-316. We are taking calls. Uh, we're going to draw a few uh, loose ends together, Mark Fowler, because uh, we were talking about you know what Jesus says about taking oaths, about swearing on uh, the Bible, swearing before God. And uh, he said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Uh, let's talk about, though, uh, things that are specific for our Australian context because uh, uh, there is a section in our Constitution which is an important 
section of the Constitution. And I guess every politician who takes office uh, takes an oath and they're saying that they'll uphold the Constitution of Australia. What's important in there to take note of? Uh, in the Constitution itself, you mean? Yeah, well, so, so Section 42 is the one under which they make an oath. Um, but Section 116 is also uh, relevant to this discussion because it's, the free, it's known as the free exercise clause. Uh, and I'll read it if you like. It, it might be familiar to many of the listeners because it's often cited. But it says, The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion. And no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. And um, in the last hour, we've been talking, you said drawing the threads together, we've been talking about the O's as a kind of, um, you know, a witness to the otherness or the other world on which imposes moral obligations upon us, um, a world that is greater than the state. So we look to an oath to affirm, you know, our, a relationship with God in a sense, which gives an underlying weight that is greater than an, an oath to the state itself. And so that's... You know, so there is this um, acknowledgement there in the oath itself that there is this other world. Section 116 of the Constitution, which effectively prohibits the Commonwealth from making any law prohibiting the free exercise of any religion, is almost an, an implicit, um, again, reflection of that principle, that there are obligations that are binding upon the conscience that are beyond the individual, you know, that are greater than the state's imposition upon us. And so within our Commonwealth law, there is recognition that someone might have a space for breaching proposed laws that effectively the Constitution works to nullify any law that breaches its principles. So it's almost a reflection of Augustine's statement that uh, you know, uh, unjust law is not law itself. And so in that sense, if it's unjust because it prohibits someone's free exercise of religion, then you know, it is not law. Um, so really, you know, we can see we've been tracing the passage of the relationship between the sacred and, and the secular right through the Magna Carta and you know Augustine and Henry VIII and so on. That's almost a modern day expression of that relationship between church and state that we're recognizing in our constitution the state cannot go so far as to impose upon someone's conscience or someone's free exercise of their religion. And any law that purports to do so will be nullified by a court. Hmm. Time for one more call. Hello, Richard from Western Australia. Richard, what are your thoughts? Yeah, hi. Um, good morning to you. It's, uh, I've got. Uh, I've thought about this a long time. Firstly, in a democracy um, in Australia, we pledge ourselves and take this oath. From this time forward, under God, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people, whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. There's in that, an unconditional statement of obedience to the state itself. And that poses a question for the, uh, a problem for the Bible-believing Christian in that our conscience must ultimately be upheld by the word of God and obedience to God. So there should be and could be in uh, Christian people a question about whether we can actually pledge allegiance to the state in this way, um, this issue was raised in a book, and I, I can recommend it to people to read. It's called The Dilemma of Church and State by G. Olson Ruff. It was written back in the uh, 1950s. And he said this, 
In America, uh, sorry, he says, now the subject becomes complicated. In a democracy, the citizens are the state because the word demos means people and kratos means rule. So it's the rule of the people, by the people and for the people. And he writes, in America, there are many churches and at least among Protestants, the members of the congregation are the church. The church and the state must be kept separate as the experience of history has proved, because when the church and the state has been combined, they become a tyranny more often than not. But they cannot be separated because they consist of the same people. Mm, very good thoughts in there, Richard, and I'll have to cut you short because we're about to run out of time. But Richard from WA, good thoughts. A quick response from you, Mark? It's interesting. I'm Karl Barth, um, who was a German um, theologian around the time of Hitler, might provide an answer to your concern there. He um, effectively um, reconciled his concern with the oath that was being required of Hitler by saying, well, the oath is given to God, so it affirms a pre-existing commitment um, by affirming um, a, you know, on the Bible. Effectively, it is implying that higher authority. Richard from WA, great getting your input. Uh, essentially, uh, what you're saying is that uh, it's easy to make an oath to affirm a nation that is under God. Uh, it gets difficult. It gets complicated as soon as the uh, as soon as someone uh, who wants to impose a totalitarianism uh, tries to take a nation out from under God and still wants that allegiance. So there, you've got this sort of. Uh, a contrasting uh, idea of who your allegiance is to. Well, great conversation again today and really appreciate you, Mark Fowler. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you've got coming up this year with CLEAR. Uh, where do people get some details? Uh, if you are a person who's uh, been in, in Christian law or you know a Christian lawyer, you can point them to CLEAR and uh, they can connect with you, Mark. How do, how do people actually connect? And you've got some things coming up. Sure. they can go. The best way is to go to um, clear.org.au. Uh, and probably one of the bigger things coming up is um, for the first time in 14 years, we're holding an Australasian Christian Legal Convention. Um, later this year, 29th of September to the 1st of October. So that's something that certainly Christian lawyers out there should be interested in. Uh, we're running a couple of mission trips over into East Africa, sending young lawyers, well, from young lawyers up to barristers over. Um, so there's a whole heap of further information on the website. People can go there and um, and have a look. So if you Google CLEAR, C-L-E-A-R, you'll find CLEAR and you'll be able to link with uh, Christian lawyers in Australia. Mark Fowler, just great getting your insights as usual. Thanks for being with us on 2020. Pleasure, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.